Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast. Today, my guest is Steve Hall, who is a pommy with 40 years in Australia, and he is the Managing Director of Executive Sales Coaching Australia, and he is Australia's leading authority on C-level sales. Steve, it's a pleasure to have you today. Thank you for coming along. Well, hello and good day. <laughs> Excellent. I can imagine you now with your hat with corks. Yes, surprisingly, I was wearing a tie today. The first time for quite a long time I was at an event, so I, I thought I'd dress up. Did they think you were there for an interview? <laughs> no, it was a sales leadership forum event. I thought I'd put a tie and I was the only person out of 60 people there wearing a tie. <laughs> You're a fashion leader now. Well, it's good to stand out. Absolutely. Excellent. So, Steve, would you mind giving the audience a quick potted history of how you got to where you are? Okay. I was fortunate that uh, being very old, I was around in England in the days of free education. So the government kindly paid me to go to uh, Bristol University. And I repaid that by not going to lectures and basically chasing women, taking drugs and drinking beer. But unfortunately, I did it in the reverse order. So I didn't catch many women. <laughs> you did then, chemistry, I think. Yeah, I did. Just it, like well, it, 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 was, it was fairly irrelevant because I, I didn't I said I didn't go to that many lectures. I scraped, I scraped a degree. <laughs> and then I spent eight years in Bristol basically having fun and not doing anything serious. I thought... When I was about 25, I thought I should get a proper job rather than bar jobs and labouring jobs and things like that. So um, I applied for a job as a medical rep on the basis that a doctor friend of mine told me you got a company car. In those days, the interview process was something like, uh, Steve, do you have a degree? Yes. Okay, you start next week. I've had a few jobs like that. <laughs> so I spent three and a half years doing that. And then I decided I'd come to Australia to make my money in the colonies for a year. And here I am 40 years later. I moved into computers and um, I went to IBM and took their tests and they said, oh, you're quite bright. Um, can we see your visa? And I said, visa? Visa? And they said, oh, no, we don't take people here on holiday visas. So I went to Burroughs Computers and they didn't think to ask. So I joined them and I met a girl and um, worked my way. And I actually started as a salesperson, but I was absolutely terrible. I had no idea what I was doing and no one, no one taught me. And after six months, they said to me, Steve, you're... Crap salesman, but you know, you're reasonably bright. So, do you want to move into support? So, I moved into support and worked my way through being a project manager and a program manager and a professional services manager and then a marketing manager. And then eventually, I decided that I was sick of fixing other people's problems and I'd rather make some problems for other people. So, uh, I did marketing for a while and then they kindly gave me, <laughs> they kindly gave me a lot of money to go away. And at that stage, I was just, I just got married. So, um, I left and then paid off a chunk of the mortgage. And then I discovered that there's not a lot of market for 42-year-old um, ex-marketing managers. So I got a job selling ERP systems. And I still didn't know what I was doing, but I thought I'd better learn. So I started reading and, learn and listening to tapes and researching and learning how to become a salesperson. And after a couple of years, the guy that hired me left, and I took over as, um, First of all, national marketing manager and then international marketing manager looking after sales and marketing throughout the world. And we ended up becoming the leading supplier of ERP software to publishers in the world. And then that company got bought and um, I worked with a new company for a couple of years. I went to Paris as a global account manager and then I closed a, a very large deal there. And then I resigned, came back to Australia and I've been working for myself ever since. 
Fantastic. Okay, so a wonderfully checkered journey. I suspect there's a lot of lessons that came from failure and self-sabotage along the way, so I'd like to explore that. I always find that scar tissue is far and away the best teacher. You've obviously managed to create this position for yourself as the leading authority on C-level sales. One of the things that I hear time and again from the C-suite is that their experience of salespeople is too frequently very poor. And I think it starts in the foundational stages where salespeople really don't understand who their ideal customer is. I know this is a subject close to your heart. Do you mind telling me about the process that you go through when you're coaching your clients about understanding their marketplace? Yeah, I think there's, there's two things there. One, there's, it's certainly you need to know what your ideal customer looks like, but you also need the ability, at whatever level of sales you're in, to understand the perspective of the customer, what they think rather than what you think they think. I've seen so many salespeople get in front of a senior executive and then just blurt out how great they are. You know, hey, we're, we're, we're big and important and you should be happy to buy off us and it just doesn't work. And I was actually in a seminar, uh, an event this morning um, with Tony Hughes and a few other people. And uh, Tony says that you know, CEB did some research that said 85% of senior executives say that salespeople bring no value at all to the conversation. Most salespeople show up and throw up, quote and hope and sell and run. That's just a waste of everybody's time and resource. Absolutely. And the other thing you, meant, you mentioned is, is, is knowing your ideal customer. When I first joined my, the ERP company that I, um, that I mentioned and knew nothing about sales, the, the guy that hired me, he was a great guy, still a friend and a client, he said, look, you know, I, I know we've got a great solution for two niches, consumer electronics and publishers, but I want you to see if we can sell it to other people. So I started calling other distributors. And we were only a small company. We were competing with the SAPs of the day. So back then, the giants were J.D. Edwards and BPIX, big American companies with, with lots of money. And we had 15 yeah. people in the company. We were never going to compete unless we had an edge. And our edge was we were good at those two niches. And when I went talking to food distributors, they would say, well, have you got use-by dates? And I would say, no, we can put them in there. But why would we get you to put them in there when bigger companies have got them? And I'd work with two card distributors, and they'd say, well, you know, can you handle a dealer network? And I no, we can't do that. And I'd go to different types of distributor. And even though we provided a distribution ERP, from the customer's perspective, yeah. we didn't give them what they wanted because they weren't just in distribution. They were in book distribution or car distribution or food distribution or something else. So from their perspective, they weren't in that amorphous mass of distributors. They were in a much narrower niche. I went back to John and I said, look, why don't we just focus on what we're really good at? And we then, so that's what we did. And we created a couple of brands, same software, but two different brands, Bookmaster for Books and Powermaster for Consumer Electronics. And we just focused on the fact that we really knew those industries and we were successful with both. This is really interesting because what I'm seeing is the companies that are growing fastest are niching very deep and they are sacrificing and giving up trying to please everybody. And what I see time and time and time again are companies who try and please everybody and end up pleasing no one. There's a story back a long time ago now, probably 15, 20 years ago. We did a demonstration to a book publisher. And our software was specifically for book publishers, right? I mean, we'd had a lot of particular modules that were aimed at them in addition to this. You know, there was the accounts payable, accounts receivable, general ledger, warehousing, 
inventory, etc. But we also had particular modules for, for subscriptions, for new title releases, for returns and things like that. So it was quite book specific. And we spent a full day doing a demonstration to the managing director of this company. And at the end of it, he said, it's not bad, but it's not really a trade publishing system, is it? Because they were trade publishers and they, did, they made a distinction between trade and academic publishers. We ended up selling it to them and we ended up putting stuff in for them to make it more of a trade system. But they didn't see themselves, you know, if you were to talk to the big software companies and look at their markets, they say, oh yeah, we're into media. And by media, they would mean publishing and newspapers and film and TV and cinema and everything. But these people didn't see themselves as being in media. They didn't even see themselves as being in publishing. They saw themselves as trade publishers. Well, again, if I look back, again, I'm showing my age. You look at companies like Sun and Tandem and what they did. You had IBM with their PCs and their mainframes, and Sun comes along with their MIDI system. And before IBM realized that Sun existed, they dominated that niche. And you saw Tandem doing the same with parallel computing. So they managed to corner that section of the market within financial services. And DEC. Absolutely required. And DEC, yeah, absolutely. And so we've seen this pattern for the last 30, 40, 50 years. But for some reason, people seem fixated on trying to add more rather than take stuff away and only focus on the stuff that makes the boat go faster. It's sort of human nature. I mean, if you're a sales rep, well, I mean, I used to, I used to have this too when I started. If you're a sales rep, you want the biggest territory you can possibly get because you've got this illusion that your customers are going to come to you. And if your territory is 10 times bigger, then you've got 10 times more chance of customers coming to you. But it doesn't work that way. So many people I've talked to and I've started by saying, okay, tell me, you know, who do you sell to? And they say, well, we can sell to anyone. And I said, well, that's terrible. You, you haven't got the resources to sell to anyone. Why don't you pick someone to sell to? If you can sell to anyone, then pick people you're really good at and sell to them and forget the rest. There is a fundamental rule in life that I've discovered, which is what you say no to matters more than what you say yes to. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, no, absolutely. <laughs> so taking this to the next logical stage, in terms of doing your research, Prior to engaging with a C-suite executive, I'm curious what process you advise people to go through to refine and define their message so that it's laser focused on the specific audience that you're trying to target. Okay, that's a great question. First of all, you need to know your ideal customer profile or, or ideal customer's profile. There may be more than one. And... Because you know, there's absolutely no point approaching someone that doesn't need what you sell. You can potentially sell ice creams to Eskimos, but why would you if you could sell them to people in the desert? You know, Hopefully, my clients have understand that, but some of them don't. So I'll say to them, okay, well, if you can sell to anyone, pick someone. There was one company that approached me about oh God, 10 years ago now, and they did the old story. You know, we're good at, we, Once we get in front of the sealer, we're good at selling, but um, we can't get in front of them. So I said, okay, who do you sell to? They were a digital agency. Who do you sell to? Well, we can sell to anyone. Okay, well, who do you have credibility with where you understand the industry that you can sell to someone? Oh, well, we've, got, you know, we, we, we've done some work with retailers. So there was at least 100 retailers, as in you know, retail groups in Australia, that were big enough to need their services. So that was simply a question of asking them those questions. Who are your customers now? Who have you got experience with? Who do you understand? And that was more than enough for them to focus on because they didn't have the resources to focus on more than 100 companies. So in terms of developing the message, what are the aspects of the message that really matter the most to grab the attention? Because 
senior executives are surrounded by noise. And there, lots of people want their time, although in fairness, the majority of salespeople are avoiding picking up the phone to them. What do you have to do to craft that message so it grabs their attention and it's personalized? Well, there are a couple of things. First of all, you have to get the message to them in a format that they will digest. That depends. There's all these talk about cold calling versus social selling, but they're all just channels. The ways that you get the message to people are phone, email, LinkedIn, video. You send them a parcel with someone with a, a shrunken head in it. You marry their daughter. I mean, there's many different ways to get the message. And then the question is, as you said, what's the content of that message? And I'm going to give you a really, really boring answer, which is it depends. Depends on what you sell. It depends on who you sell it to. But the components, first of all, what, who are they? Who is your target market, right? That's the first thing. Then what do they really care about that you can help them with? Now, again, they depends upon the industry they're in because what trade publishers care about is a little bit different to what academic publishers care about and very, very different to what TV shows care about. So who are they? What do they care about? And from a perspective of that type of company and from a perspective of the industry and the niche they're in, and then what do they care about from the perspective of what's their role? In other words, what the CEO cares about is going to be somewhat different to what the CFO cares about, which is which should be different to what the CIO cares about. And then the final thing is, okay, bearing all of that in mind, what do they care about in terms of that specific company? Does that company have some challenges? So you, you build your message based upon a combination of different factors. There's no one size fits all. A couple of really useful tips I've learned along the way. If you're selling to public companies, look at their annual reporting accounts. Yes. Section 1A is made up of all the blue sky fibs that the chief executive chairman and CFO are peddling to their investors. Section 1B is made up of all the caveats as to why Section 1A will not happen. (laughs) And if you can help them solve any of the problems in Section 1B, that's the equivalent of giving them a knighthood. And so that's a fantastic resource. The other thing you mentioned is where are they in their life cycle? Are they in startup? Are they in continuation where basically they've ironed out most of the creases, everything's going on level pegging? Are they in growth? Are they in turnaround? Are they in recovery? Because each of those stages of a company or a product or a market's life cycle bring with them a different set of pains and opportunities. So understand that. Also understand where they are in their career. So if, for example, a C-suite executive is six months or less into his or her job, they're still in the honeymoon period which means that they have to start coming up with some ideas in the next six months or else they will fail in that role and probably be out on their ass. If they are late in their time in a post, chances are they're either feathering their nest for their next move or they're trying to write the history they want to be remembered for. So what's the legacy that they're aiming to leave behind? And it's really important to understand how to position your message Another platform that I love to use comes from some resilience training by, I think his name is Schmidt, Paul Schmidt, and on resilience. And it's CORE, C-O-R-E, Control, Ownership, Reach, and Endurance. What do they control? What should they control? What do they want to control? What can't they control? In terms of ownership, 
What is the responsibility that they have? Who owns the problem? Who owns the upside? Who owns the victory? Who owns the failure and will get blamed? Reach. What's the ripple effect? If you drop a pebble in the pond, who else is going to be affected, positively or negatively, if they're successful or if they fail? And endurance is how long have they had that problem for and how much longer are they willing to tolerate it? So again, I fundamentally believe that most of the value, particularly in top-level, high-value, high-ticket sales and enterprise selling, is done away from the customer and away from the prospect in the research phase. I don't believe that you can put in enough research. There is, however, an argument to make sure that you don't spend so much time getting ready to get ready that you miss the opportunity. So you need to be clear and use specific tools to help you identify when the iron is hot enough to strike. Any thoughts on that? Well, that's a lot to have thoughts on, but yes, I agree. I think one of the things I would add, although it's, you've sort of covered it, is priorities. What's the priority right now? And, and that, that, that comes back to the annual report and, and, and similar things. Or it can come back to what's happening in the outside environment. I mean, at the moment, we have a, a Royal Commission into aged care here, which is throwing up all sorts of problems with aged care homes. If you wanted to sell to an aged care provider, then you need to bear that in mind. And if you can say, look, you know, we can help you in this current environment where the government's digging deeply into your practices, you've got a much better chance of getting their attention than if you try and sell them something that's not relevant. Equally, I'm sure that if we went to Donald Trump and said, look, we can make this Ukraine thing go away, he'd probably, you know, listen. There's another platform that I recommend to my clients, which is a slight variant on PEST or PESTLE, P-E-S-T-T-L-E, political, economic, social, times and timing, technological, legal and regulatory, and environmental. And when you start to explore a senior executive's environment using those platforms as points to question, what's the political landscape? What's the financial status of the business? What's the economy like? Is there a social movement driving shift in behavior or buying tastes? Is there some form of timing issue, some compelling event? Is there a shift in technology? Is there some form of Uberization of their marketplace, you know, AI, machine learning, quantum computing. Is there a shift in the legal and regulatory environment, which means that they have to comply or they will be vilified, they'll be fined, they could lose their job, and the environmental movement. Mark Carney only a couple of days ago stated that companies that do not have a good sustainability policy will go bankrupt. And I can't remember the name of the VC. But he recently invested 100 million in Oxford and 400 million in MIT to look at research around values around AI, uh, making sure that you know, the AI doesn't get out of control. And he will not invest in companies that do not have a strong sustainability philosophy. So again, if you can help solve any of those kind of problems for your prospective customer, suddenly you've become front and center because you're not one of these empty suits that turns up and just spews product information and crows about how great they are. Absolutely. What you're espousing is having a different message for every person you approach. And people don't want that. They want the magic bullet. They want the value proposition that will they can send to a thousand people and, and, and you know, five people will buy it. And unfortunately, that's not a particularly good way of working. This raises two or three really important questions. 
what I see too often is people want to be rock stars. So they want the fame and the fortune, but they don't want to put the graft in. The Beatles became overnight successes after seven years in a dingy Hamburg cellar playing 12 hours a day, seven days a week, and they learned their craft. And I don't think there is enough emphasis on doing the basics well consistently. And that brings me to my next major bugbear, which is the lack of executive training for new sales managers and ongoing training for sales managers to get less than 5% of the training budget invested in salespeople. And as a result, they don't understand that their job is to hire the best people and get the best out of them, make sure they have the resources they need in order to do their best work and protect them from their idiot bosses. Now, the challenge here is that very few managers on board effectively, very few recruit effectively, they recruit reactively, then they fail to on board. And so an A player becomes a B or a C player by dint of being stuck with all of the average performers in the business for weeks or months on end, and they don't set them up to succeed. And then there is no coaching. And as a result of that, the salespeople only learn by failing miserably. And if they're smart enough to capture those lessons or get help independently. And this is really where I'd like to take the conversation next. In terms of coaching salespeople and managers on how to understand the business environment and develop some business acumen, what are your bits of advice around that in order to help people perform better when selling to the C-suite? That's an excellent question. I mean, people talk about product knowledge, and you need to to know your product, but you're much more important than that. You need to understand the business of the people you're selling to. I suppose I say what keeps them awake now. It's a terrible thing to say. That's one of the worst questions you can possibly ask. You should know that. You need to understand the ins and outs of their business and, and make intelligent assumptions. When you're going to speak to someone, you need to be able to say, do you have this, that, and the other problem? I once went into the head office of Pearson in Upper Saddle River in New Jersey and spent the entire day talking to the head of uh, Latin America. And all we talked about was publishing. I talked about it in the context of my software, but it's about how returns works, how new title releases work. Do you have an issue where this, this, and this happens? Well, this is how we handle that. What about this happening? And if you don't understand their business, then how can you give them any value? So I think to answer your question, I think we need to, first of all, realize that people need to understand their client's business, need to be able to talk to them on their level about their issues. I remember when I worked for Unisys, before I got into sales, I was uh, in charge of professional services in the finance division. And they brought in um, Bain and one of the the big consulting companies to give us a a two-week course on how banking worked. And that was immensely valuable because we could understand it from the banker's perspective. I think that it ties in with understanding your market, understanding your ideal customer. The question then is, okay, how does the ideal customer's business work and what are the gaps and the problems that you can help fill or solve. If you say to someone, we can do A, B, and C, well, big deal. But if you describe a situation to someone, look, have you had a situation, I'll use one I know from publishing, have you, do you get a situation where you send books out to uh, Woolworths, big W, as it's called here, yeah. and on sale of return, and they return books that aren't even yours and they make a claim for it, and then you've got to go through all the purses of bringing them back into the warehouse and crediting them and then arguing about the credit and reconciling everything. And, and they'll say, yeah, that's a terrible problem. I say, well, we've got a particular solution for that. Now let's look at, do you have this problem? And if you can describe their pain to them, 
you're empathizing and they think, God, this guy knows, knows, knows my stuff, not knows his stuff, knows my stuff. So that then brings me to the, the million dollar question. What does the C-suite want from a salesperson? They want someone that they can talk to on their level, that understands their issues from their perspective, and they can help them come up with effective solutions that will solve something that they care about and that's a priority for them. Because every C-level executive, whoever it is, the CEO or the CIO, hasn't got one problem, they've got a thousand problems. But they can only focus on a you know, relatively small number at any one time. So the question is, which of my priorities can you help me with? And can you, at some stage, they want you to tell them how you do what you do, because eventually they're going to get to the stage where they're convinced that, yes, potentially you can help them, and they want proof. But you don't start with proof. You start with talking. The first question people want to know is, why should I waste half an hour of my valuable time talking to you when 8 million other people want that same half hour? And if you can answer that, then the next question is, okay, what's in it for me? What can you do for me that I want? And then when they finally start to think, okay, maybe this person can do something, the question, next question is, okay, are they bullshitting me? You know, can they really do it? That's when they want proof. But that's the order. You don't start off with white papers and case studies. You start off with talking to them about, you've got, I know you've got this issue. I'm going to describe the pain you get from this issue. And I'm going to say to you, I can help you with this issue. Shall we keep talking? This is so key because I think one of the worst myths that's peddled in the general sales arena is that you have to have a strong elevator pitch. And the elevator pitch is all selfish. It's talking about you, your company, your products, your services. And your 30-second commercial needs to enter into their world. The analogy I use is, there's a scene in the film Finding Nemo where they're swimming along and suddenly they hit the Gulf Stream. And when they do, whoosh, off they go. And it's our job as salespeople, as sales professionals, let's put it that way, to enter into the conversations they are already having. The stuff that gives them bile, causes them an ulcer, that causes them to worry, to sit in fear, to think, God, what am I going to do? This is a problem that's keeping me not only awake at night, but it's potentially threatening my job, my reputation. And it's the stuff that could mean that I have to lay off hundreds or thousands of people. And as a result of that, if you can enter into that conversation, suddenly you have their attention. And their attention is emotional. And this is where the traditional selling methodologies go horribly wrong as well. Because as you say, they lead with logic and reason. They lead with the white papers and the proofs. But that's not how people buy. That's not how the brain works. And no matter how good you think you are, you are not going to override 300 million years of evolutionary hardwiring of how the brain goes about making decisions. You have to find the emotion. Then there has to be a trigger that causes the brain to say, okay, this is worth investigating. Let's go and find some evidence. And if the evidence is compelling, then it justifies the emotional decision. And too often, salespeople miss this, and marketing departments miss this. Technology companies are atrocious at this. If you look at their websites, they're packed full of tedious technological detail, which is of only of real interest to people too low down the food chain to be able to make a decision. They don't speak to the audience that they really need to speak to which is the C-suite, because that's where power lies. That's where people can say, you know, 
I want this, make it happen. And everybody else will march to their tune. So why is it after all these years, people still haven't got to grips with that simple fundamental fact of human nature? Well, you said it yourself for a while, that the basics are important. And what you've just described to a degree is the old advertising adage, AIDA, attention, interest, desire, and action. Your elevator pitch, if there is, well, there is such a thing, your elevator pitch is designed to get their attention. And it's going to talk about them. Initially, your objective, the action that you want initially, is to get them to listen more. If you've got 30 seconds, the only objective is to get them to, be, to, to want to know more. If you can talk about something that they care about, then they want to know more. If they don't care about it, then they don't. But you're not trying to sell them in that 30 seconds. You're just trying to get enough of their attention or get their attention to get enough interest for them to desire to hear more. That's the initial AIDA. Because we know our own product so well, we live it, we breathe it, we know all the bits and bites and how to overcome objections and all these old-fashioned things. We can't understand how these stupid prospects are so idiotic they can't understand how good it is for them. And what we forget is that they don't know we exist, they don't care we exist, and if they did know we exist, well, there are a million other people that, 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 that are ahead of us in the priority queue. For those of you listening, pay heed to this rule. There are no bad prospects. There are only bad salespeople. And tied to that, you can never blame the prospect. For doing something to you, you never said he could not do. And as a result, what salespeople tend to do is get bitter and twisted. And bear in mind, what you've just done when you've turned up and you've talked about your company and your product range and how wonderful you are and who your clients are, is the equivalent of a newborn father turning up with photographs of his ugly child and showing it to a total stranger and then expecting them to coo and be excited. If you turn up and show photos of your ugly baby to a C-suite executive, serves you right when you leave with your, their blueprint on your buttocks. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> so that moves us very cleanly to what do they not want from a salesperson? They don't want to be pitched. They don't want to be sold to. They don't want to be pressured. They don't want clever trial closes or alternate or questions. You know, do you want in blue or yellow? They want someone that can talk to them intelligently about their business in their language. One of my mentors is a chap called Dr. Mark Goulston. He wrote a fabulous book. He wrote two fabulous books, actually. One called Just Listen and the other called Talking to Crazy. Highly recommended if you haven't read them. Just Listen is a must-read for anyone. If you're part of the human species, you have to read it, and particularly if you're in sales or in management. And in there, he says that we all want to be heard to feel felt, and to be understood. I joke about this being a lapsed Catholic. I think one of the reasons why the Catholic Church has survived so long is confession, because it's a, an opportunity to unburden. And what I've noticed, as I've improved my own sales capability, the number of times CEOs say to me, you know, I've never told anybody this. I've been in business with my partner for 18 years. He doesn't even know this is a concern of mine. I haven't even told my wife. And salespeople who can create that kind of reaction from a prospect will be sought out because it's lonely. You're isolated. You feel exposed in a very senior position in organizations. And what you're looking for is someone who understands you. 
Stephen Covey said, you know, seek first to understand, then to be understood. That's correct. When you are a sales director or a CEO, it's very difficult to admit that to your peers or to your direct reports because you're, you're seen as the one that's in charge and in control. So, yes, you do need to have someone that can do that, but it's probably not going to be someone from within your own organization. Again, another big influence of mine was Stephen Covey. I remember asking him a very mediocre question to which I got this spectacular stellar response, which was, the greatest among us serve the most. And that was a turning point for me when I realized that my job was service, not servitude, which is where most salespeople end up, but service. It's actually focusing on the other person, caring enough to focus totally on them, no distractions, and paying full attention. My friend Ron Voparais came up with this wonderful maxim, which is attention is a currency. Okay, you pay attention. And the problem is that most salespeople are fixated on listening for the silence so that they can fill it with the sound of their own voice, rather than slowing down, absorbing what the prospect has said to them, and then feeding off that response to ask another fantastic, insightful, and often uncomfortable, challenging question. And I believe a salesperson's job is diagnosis. It's Prescription is the easy bit, and you only prescribe when you've diagnosed the correct cause of their problem. What they do not want is somebody coming along and mind-reading and making assumptions about what their problem is without having first established what the real cause is. And done a lot of work in media, and one of the worst things I ever heard was the maxim, you're only ever three years from being fired by a client. What kind of stupid short-term thinking is that? If you win an enterprise customer, you want to keep them for decades. They are your passport to early retirement and untold wealth. But the only way that you can achieve that is by serving them, making sure you are helping them meet their agenda, meet their objectives. And too often in a sales meeting, the salesperson doesn't really understand how to establish that agenda or the boundaries. What's the advice that you give to your clients right at the opening phases of a meeting with a C-level executive to establish the ground rules, establish the agenda, and establish the boundaries? Okay, well, I mean, I'll just picking up on what you said first, you talked about sales meetings and executive meetings. I'll say to my clients before I get to that stage, I'll say, okay, what do you discuss in a sales meeting or an, exe- or an executive meeting? And you discuss your, your prospects, your products, your customers, your pipeline, your leads, your if you're in an executive meeting, you talk about your you know, your suppliers, um, your shareholders. And they say, okay, when you talk to a prospect, that's what they think about. Theirs, not yours. They don't care about any of this stuff that you talk about in sales meetings or executive meetings. They care about themselves. Because to me, there's two of the most important qualities in a salesperson are empathy, well, three, empathy, being able to put yourself in the other, other person's perspective, and curiosity, when you ask a question, really wanting to know the answer and digging deep. So that's what I told them to start with. But when it comes to starting a meeting with a senior executive, the first question I ask is, how did you get through the door? Why are they seeing you? They've agreed to see you for a reason. They must have some expectation. Now, I did some work a few years back with a very large software company that wanted some hot leads or so wanted some executive meetings. 
And um, we got them in to see a number of financial institutions, credit unions and, um, and small banks here on the basis of how we'd like to talk to you about how we can help you to sign more home loans because the, the credit unions were growing. They wanted to get more customers. And um, this, this company, among other things, sold customer experience software, which helped you to do it automatically. So we got those meetings for them. And we actually got someone to transcribe the meetings on the phone so we could see how it went. And the, the, you know, it pretty much went, oh, hi, we're from a big American software company. We've got clients all over the world who aren't banks and aren't in Australia. And we do all this. And my job is to work in the mid-market. And, and there was nothing whatsoever about what got them the call in the first place, which is helping their customers to sign more home loans. So I would say, you know, I would say, look, find out what first question is. Sure, you know, want to know what your objective is, get another meeting. But what's their objective? Why have they agreed to see you? And then the next question I ask, tell them what I think about is, what intelligent question, what intelligent assumptions can you make based upon your research where you can show you've put yourself into the customer's shoes? And, and yes, you can, you can make assumptions, but they've got to be intelligent assumptions that you test. And the other thing I say is, what stories can you tell? that show your debt, that demonstrate that you understand what you're talking about rather than just tell them, yeah, we do this, that, and the other. How can you, at the appropriate stage, bring stories in? And there's a number of other things, but there are three other things I tell people. But the first thing I think when you're meeting someone is you set an agenda. Thanks for um, scheduling this meeting. The reason we've agreed to get together is to talk about how we can help you to do X, Y, and Z. And um, what I'd like to do is I'd like to, I'd like to cover this, this, and this, if this is okay with you. And can I just start off by asking a couple of questions? And then the first question is, okay, you have an issue with doing X. And then you explore that. And the questions you ask depend upon the situation you're in. There's no set of standard, what keeps you awake at night, or what are your top three issues questions, because they just show you haven't done your research. But if you can say, in your annual report, you said that your key focus this year was on increasing customer satisfaction, can I ask you, what are the top three things that you've tried to do to achieve that? Or what's the major obstacle that you're having that's stopping you doing that? Then you're starting to open the conversation. And then you sit back and listen and you dig deep to really, really understand the question. And you're not afraid to say, I'm sorry, I didn't quite get that. Can you explain that a different way? Or can you say that a different way? Or, or do you read, when you say this, do you mean that? But there's no standard set of one, two, three questions you ask. It depends okay. upon research that you do and on the situation you're in. Again, a couple of things come out of that. I, I do want to come back to the structure of the meeting, but a couple of things. The first thing is, if you are going to take up the time and they are going to invest their time in you when you are selling to them, bear in mind, if you're dealing with a C-level uh, exec of a large multinational, their time, the, the contribution they are expected to make is measured in the tens of thousands of dollars per hour. So you better be prepared. So you need to go in with a clear plan. You also need to have rehearsed. Do not wing your meetings with C-suite executives. Don't wing your meetings with anybody. When you think about the amount of time and effort and resource it takes to get one lead to a meeting, it is a crashing waste. I think it's an act of gross misconduct to turn up to a meeting not having prepared and not having planned and not having rehearsed. And I advise my clients, and this will come as a shock to many of you, that for every hour they expect to be in front of the prospect, they need to put in three hours minimum rehearsal. Now, 
If you put that amount of time in, your conversion rate goes up. 83% of first meetings fail to turn into a second meeting. So it's all well and good getting meetings, but what the hell are you doing wasting, squandering that opportunity through lack of preparation? The next thing is, do not work to a script. Have a framework so that you understand that you're moving from A to B to C to D. In Sander, we have the submarine, bonding, upfront contract, pain, budget decision, second upfront contract, fulfillment, post-sell, and referrals. So I know where we are at each moment in the sales cycle, and I'm always moving forward. But I don't ever follow a script. I have a framework. So for example, around pain discovery, I'll look at the scope, the significance, and the priority. I want to understand what caused them at this point to think about this problem and fixing it. I want to know how long it's been going on for and what caused them to take action now. I want to understand what made them aware of it and how long they've been aware of it and how often it happens and at what point did it become a problem worth fixing. And too often, salespeople lack that savvy to have that framework and to understand that you're taking the prospect through a journey of discovery. Because if they knew what the cause of their problem was, wouldn't they already have fixed it? So it's our job to be great diagnosticians. And I reiterate again, prescription before diagnosis is malpractice. And there is too much selling malpractice going on. And that is why, taking your point from earlier, Steve, CEOs are saying regularly, the salesperson brought no value. It was a waste of my time. And that is a sin, as far as I'm concerned. What you said is very true as well. You put in a massive, massive effort to get a meeting, and then, uh, and then you just throw it away. It's like going through all of the qualifying stages of the European Championships and then not turning up for the final. Absolutely. And too often, we forget. This is one of my bugbears. I hear people blather on about how important it is for them to like you and to build a relationship and so on. All of that can come later. What they need to do is trust you. They need to know that you have their best interests at heart and you're putting them front and center. They have your full attention and that your intent is to help. It's not to selfishly see if you can turn them into an ATM machine from which you can extract cash. The revenue, the the transaction is a byproduct of doing your job well in the first place, doing the right behaviors, coming with the right intent, making sure that you're fully prepared, making sure you understood their situation and their marketplace, their environment, where they are in their role. So that when you target your questions, you're actually bringing value and your questions should challenge them. They should deliver insight and they should help them raise their level of understanding. The number of times I've had CEOs and senior executives tell me, you know, I've never really seen it that way before. And this is the first time I've really understood what my problem is. What I really like is when, I, when I'm in, in with a client or a, a senior executive and I ask, I ask them a question and they go, oh, well, that's a good question. And they're going to think about it. Then I've, I've asked them to hit home. To take that a little bit further, I think where a lot of salespeople go horribly wrong is they stop at the first response. 
I believe what we have to do is we have to keep cutting away, cutting away, cutting away till we get the root cause of their problem. And you do not take the first response because it's always intellectual. The second response is always intellectual. The third one may be emotional, but often you have to dig four, five, six, seven deep in order to get to that root cause and tear the scales from their eyes so they suddenly realize the real problem. And often what we find is it's them. They have propagated a culture that tolerated certain behaviors or non-performance. They have been getting in the way because they were so wedded to their old way of doing things that they haven't seen the new reality creep up on them. As a result, we have to nurture them through that process because if we jar them into it, then what happens is we trigger their amygdala and they see us as the enemy and they either freeze, flee, or fight us. And it's our job to make sure that we do not allow that to happen. They need to see us as their ally, not their adversary and not their accomplice. And we challenge them. And if they're tolerating stuff, that is doing them harm. We have to raise it with them because too often, certainly in my world, in the sales training, I see sales leadership and executive leadership propagating terrible, terrible behaviors. You look at the big vendors of technology that grew up in the 80s and 90s and the early noughties. They're stuck with their old business model. So SaaS and cloud and all of that coming along has flummoxed them because they haven't changed their compensation scheme. They haven't changed who and how they recruit. They haven't changed how they train and develop their people. So they're just waiting to be Ubered by somebody who's going to come along and is going to solve the current problem and do so in a way that people want to buy. Now, if you look at the way executives are buying now, particularly in tech, 80% of technology purchases will be made by the line of business in 2019 2020. Now, 90% of that will come through partners. Why? Because there is massive complexity. By 2026, Gartner's predicting 90% of technology purchases will be made through the channel, not through the vendor. So if they're not adapting to that reality, then they're going to find themselves out on their ear because the level of complexity, Jay McBain was talking about, within 10 years, there will be 35 million options around IT for executives to choose from. No one vendor can possibly satisfy that. So they're going to have to rely on their partners. And the partners are the people who've got the long-standing relationships. The partners are the ones who, have, who understand the business, who've spent years and years and years really getting to know the business and understanding the direction and the strategy. So too often, we're seeing executives trapped by what they've always done. And what I'm really curious about is, again, how you're coaching your clients to help the C-suite recognize that while change is abhorrent to most people, Woodrow Wilson said, if you want to make enemies, recommend change. That, I believe, fundamentally is all we ever sell. In fact, I've just read Keenan's book, Gap Selling, and that was his point too. What we sell is change, no matter whether you're selling an ERP system or care for the elderly or you know, redecorating the building. It's change. And by nature, we don't like it. So how do you coach your clients to manage the conversation about change, which is invariably unwelcome? 
It's a good question. And it's particularly, it was, you mentioned ERPs, and of course, an ERP isn't an impulse purchase, you know, apart from the fact it cost a lot of money when I used to sell them. It's a big disruption to the company for six months to two years, and, and, and everyone in the company is disrupted. So it's a huge undertaking. You don't close a sale for an ERP by saying, would you like it in blue or pink? Getting back to your question, first of all, you have to get my clients to understand the situation from the customer's perspective, and you have to ask questions that make them aware of the consequences of, the, of not changing. And you also, I think, need to make them aware of the genuine risks and how you mitigate those risks, because any big project is going to involve risks. And if you try and minimize those and say, oh, it'll should be right, mate, as, as we say here, you lose credibility. So I think you've got to look at the where will you be in three years or five years' time if you don't do something? What are the consequences of not doing something? And also, what are the consequences of doing the wrong thing? And how can we work together to mitigate those consequences so that, yes, you change, but you change in a, a managed, low risk with a partner that can help you along the way and that knows all the bumps and pitfalls? So this, again, raises another really interesting behavioral shift for salespeople. We teach a rule, which is if there's a bomb waiting to blow, light the fuse yourself. You have to raise the objections. You have to raise the risks before the prospect does. Because if it happens in their mind, then what will happen is they will run this catastrophizing, full-color, full-dolby, quadraphonics movie in their head. And you have to raise the objections before they do. Because then it's at your time of choosing, and you can help them to neutralize their concern. And Absolutely. if you don't do that, then effectively what you're doing is you're pulling the pin on a grenade and swallowing it. And that's where so often you hear, well, you didn't tell me about that. Well, you didn't ask. It's incumbent on you. Mark Twain said it beautifully. Always tell the truth. It surprises your friends and confounds your enemies. <laughs> I think we should be startlingly, disarmingly honest all the time with our prospects. Because the second we are caught in a lie, while they may forgive it, they'll never forget. And what that means is they will never trust another word that comes out of your mouth. And all we have as our currency is trust and influence. That's it. And if we are not as good as our word, if we are not 100% trustworthy as a vendor, then why would they buy from us. They will find a way to replace us and they'll find a way to get even because that's human nature. And once bitten, twice shy. So it's our responsibility to be their ally, to be a genuine partner when we're selling to them. And partnership is about helping each other get better. So one of the other things that we always teach, and I'm pretty sure you will as well, is that you have regular quarterly value reviews with your customer where they know how they're going to hold you accountable and how you're going to hold them accountable so that you're always moving forward. And you need to understand what value they want out of your relationship and how they're going to measure that. And then you need to make sure that they're holding your feet to the fire so that you're getting better and better. That's how you keep accounts. And this is, again, another crashing waste. There is no point winning an account only to let it dash out of the back door because of lack of attention to detail and lack of vulnerability, lack of inviting them to criticize you so that you can improve. Your thoughts? 
I agree with you 100%, but the th that's not the normal paradigm of sales. The normal paradigm of sales with a lot of people is get in there, get as much as you can out of the customer as possible on the first sale and then move on. I think what you're saying is totally correct, but I think that the number of people that actually practice that less than the number of people that don't practice that, shall we say. Honestly, it's fewer than 2%. I mentioned the fact that I, the, the company I worked for when I saw the RPs got acquired by another company. And I taught their US team how to sell our book publishing software. And they did very, very well. They sold, um, I think, seven or eight new sites in the first year. But what they used to, what we had many modules. We had the, the base, the core modules, and we had specific modules like royalties and subscriptions and book production, which were part of the package, but which people didn't necessarily need immediately. So when someone said to me, looking you know, up, that's more than our budget, I would say, that's no problem. So why don't you buy the core modules first? And then in a year's time, when you've implemented it, we can come back and we can address the rest. And that got within the budget enabled us to prove that everything works. In a year's time and two years' time, I would go back and I would sell them the additional modules. Worked perfectly. But what the guys in the States did, they would say, okay, well, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll throw in all of the modules and they call, that comes to $800,000 and we'll discount them by half and, and we'll give you them for 400000 And they'd win the deals that way very quickly. But because there was no more money to be got out of the customer, they lost interest. And so there was no incentive for them to look after the customer and they had a model whereby you paid an annual subscription to use the software, whether you liked to or not. So you were screwed. So their model was get customers in quickly, do it cheap, and then charge them 15% a year for as long as you could keep them. And you would keep them because it was too expensive for them to move to someone else. And that's one of the reasons I left. I, I couldn't work under that model. And in fact, in the last big sale I did, which was a um, sale in Europe for over, across five countries, I refused to sign it on that company's paper. I said, no, this, this has maybe been my company for 10 years. They won't sign your contract with those conditions. We have to use our old contract, which made the annual maintenance um, voluntary because I didn't want to lock them in to having to pay for the rest of their life for something they weren't getting value for. Probably wasn't very good for me from my company's perspective, but it eased my conscience from my customer's perspective. Again, this comes back to that whole piece around service and you mentioned this tendency to discount in order to buy the business. I think that is crazy. Discounting is one of the reasons why I think you should probably consider firing a large chunk of your sales force because many of them are no better than an empty chair when you consider how much of your profit they're giving away. And it sends a terrible message for the future because if you've started by discounting by 50%, the next thought going through their mind is, well, what next? What else can we squeeze? And as a result of that, every conversation is prefaced by, okay, so give me your best price. People do not buy on price. In a real selling situation, price is never the issue. Money is never the issue. If you can solve their problem and demonstrate value, yes, they may not have the budget for all of it. So don't give them all of it yet. Work on the basis that there is a program over which they will buy more and more. And each time you touch them, there should be value brought, not saving money in order to drive the procurement team's bonus, which is, again, one of the big challenges because I think as a profession, we as salespeople have allowed procurement to take control in these large enterprise deals. And as a result of that, we spend all of our lives on our back foot. And it shouldn't be that way. 
And in fact, there's no reason to. You should always be selling at rate card and at premium. And if you do offer any form of discount, you should be getting something of equal or greater value back in return. You shouldn't be making unilateral discounts because I think that sends the message to the C-suite that there is something wrong, you're needy and desperate, and that creates doubt in their mind. What they're looking for is leadership and a safe pair of hands from their salespeople. They're not looking for someone who'll just buy the business at any price. That's crazy. I agree. Although, I mean, that, there, are, there are some cultures where that is very much the accepted way. Certainly in China, everyone in China quotes their software and hardware at five times the retail price so they can give 80% discounts. So there is a degree of culture in that. In general, I do agree with you. People would always ask for a discount, and we basically gave them a discount up front because what we would do is uh, the object code would cost a million dollars. And when I took over, I said, okay, well, let's sell them the the source code for 25% of that, or 20% of that, or 25%, and then we'll offer them a discount. So we'll basically give them the source code for free. And that way, when they came, we would give them, we would say, okay, the price is a million dollars, source code is 250,000, but we'll discount that by 20%. It's a million dollars. And they'd come back and say, oh, can we have another discount? And say, no, no, we've already given you one. But that was a bit sneaky. <laughs> but that, again, that was in an era where every software um, vendor used to give fairly big discounts. Well, I'll challenge that. In my view, the minute you offer a discount unilaterally, I believe you've told your prospect, I lied about my price and I lied about the value. And my view is that we should be planting our feet and the first thing we do is we say no at least three times to any request for a discount. Because in my experience, most of them are trying it on. If you've done a good enough job in the diagnostic phase and you've built the value through their pain by numbers and you've worked out what it's costing them to stay stuck, then most of them will stop asking for the discount when they realize that you're not going to move. And if you do, after the third no, decide that you're going to move, then have them offer a concession first. And the concession can be introductions to other parts of their business, that they will be a, uh, they'll provide a written and video testimonial. They will act as a reference or you will get first bite of the next cherry. So again, always make sure that you get something of equal or greater value back in return. And I take on board what you're saying about cultural drivers. But again, I've taught people to sell in China and in India, where discounting is part of the culture of the Middle East. And in my experience, you can sell past that if you've built up enough value. Now, sometimes you need to give them a win because to help them feel like they've saved face. And in that case, it's okay to give that discount. But again, what you're doing is you're getting an IOU marker so that, look, if I give you this today, then what I'm looking for back is this in return. And that way, you end up on a level playing field. Otherwise, you start behaving like a commodity provider. And I think that is the kiss of death. I would agree with the latter. I mean, I think think times are changing. And I I agree that certainly you should never give someone without asking for something. I had a client... uh, couple of weeks back and the company he was dealing with two different divisions of a of a a large company and uh, one was in toronto and one was uh, here in australia and the one in toronto he offered a price of i think it was thirty eight thousand dollars 
And they came back and they said, oh, no, you're, you're, you're too dear. We can't afford that. And, and, and he was only small. He needed the business. But I was proud of him because he actually said, OK, he said, well, look, I'll tell you what I can do. I can, I can give you it for 30, this is per month, for 35,900 per month, but it's going to be over eight years, not five years. And that was, that was, he didn't give away too much and he asked for something in return. So he did well there. But then he got another email from the other division here in Australia that basically said, your price is $1.5 million over five years. Our budget's $750,000. If you don't respond within a day, then we'll assume you're not interested. And they sent it to a couple of people. He was concerned about losing the business there. And I said, look, it's your company. You've got to make a decision. I think that they're trying it on. I think they're bluffing. And I would, I would go back and I would say, this is what we can do, but you need to do something differently. You know, you need to do something for us as well. And I think they said, I think it was 750,000 over eight years. And I said, look, go back to them and say, we can do 750, but over four years. So that's why I agree with you that basically, you've, you know, you, you can't just hand over money, especially when someone says that's too much, but they want, they want you to make a counter offer. One of the guys that I trained closed a small piece of consultancy, a taste of the session for a full grand earlier last week. And his opening question was, again, you know, to come back to why am I here? Have you already decided you want to work with me and this meeting's to get the details or are you undecided and need convincing today? The CEO said, very good question. Can I answer a different one? And he said, fine, but we'll come back to mine. And he said, it's yours to lose. And his response, and this is the point, you can't lose what you never had. The CEO laughed. I like you. We'll work together. And that was the deal done. And then it was a matter of making sure that they you know, worked out what the details were and it was confirming the order. And this is a rule that I want everybody to take away. You cannot lose what you never had. And the problem is this mentality of losing a sale is down to your mental attachment to the outcome. And you made the point that the guy needed the business. If you want it but don't need it, you control the sale. If you need it, the prospect controls the sale. So on that final note, my one word of advice here is this. You prospect for choice. If you have a pipeline that is brimming three to five to 12 times more than you require in order to hit your quota, then you do not ever need any one piece of business. So get out there and prospect. Absolutely. Thank you. Steve, um, we've come to the top of the hour. Couple of questions. What are you reading? What blogs are you following? What books are you reading? What podcasts are you listening to that you'd recommend for the listeners? Okay. Well, I mean, I've recently I've read, I've read several good books. Um, Never Split the Difference by Christopher Voss is a very good book yeah. on negotiation and also a good entertaining read. He was, you probably know, he was the lead FBI hostage negotiator. Absolutely. Uh, it's quite challenging to split the difference when you're talking about a hostage. You can keep a leg. That's right. And he said basically what you've said, that you know, it's all about making an emotional connection. The, the, the people holding hostages want to be listened to. I always get this title on Persuasion by Robert Cialdini. I always loved Influence, and I think his, his, his book Persuasion is, is excellent. And a book by a friend of mine here in Australia, his next very, very good book, Seven Stories That Every Salesperson Must Tell by uh, Mike Adams. In fact, I interviewed Mike Adams about six months ago. Great interview. You'd know him. I listen to a lot of podcasts. I'm connected with a lot of uh, you know, great people. I 
Tony um, Hughes was. Uh, I was chatting to him this morning. He's uh, he always puts out interesting stuff, uh, although a very large volume. It's hard to keep up sometimes. He was my guest about three weeks ago. Okay, you're stealing on stealing on my thunder. <laughs> <laughs> I've just read today quite a, a pretty good article on using your voice by Dennis Champagne. Dennis Champagne, as in the the drink. That's right. Yeah. And um, Mario uh, Martinez and his colleagues at uh, Vengresso put out some interesting things, um, some great podcasts. And I'm again, as Mario in a couple of days. <laughs> okay, um, this is great. <laughs> and there's plenty more, but I do most of my discovery of these things through LinkedIn, and um, I read a lot of articles, blogs, and I agree with, I learn from a lot of them, and I, I disagree with a reasonable amount of them. I think there's a lot of focus these days on um, technology for technology's sake. Everyone wants a magic bullet. And yeah, magic bullets are great, but you still need to, the, need to do the basics. Thank God. One of my big bugbears is the amount of money that's being spent on sales enablement when you haven't got salespeople who can sell. All that technology is fabulous, but only if you have salespeople who have the capacity to make use of it. For all of that sales enablement investment, is wasted if a salesperson cannot use the phone, cannot ask good questions, doesn't know how to listen, doesn't know how to plan, doesn't know how to get access to the C-suite. So I'm on a mission. Stop wasting your money on that at the moment. Spend it on getting great salespeople, training them and onboarding them well, getting the best out of them, and then invest in that technology so that you can supercharge your sales. A couple of great books. Stop Selling and Start Leading by Deb Calvert and her latest book, Discover Questions. Keenan's book, Gap Selling, is really worth a read. Mike Weinberg's Sales Truth. Mike's a good guy. Yeah, really speaks a lot of sense. And also um, Selling from the Heart by Larry Levine. Oh, yeah, uh, I know Larry. Last week, fabulous. Just a joy to speak to. So final question then. If you had a golden ticket and you could go back and advise the idiot 23-year-old Steve, what would you advise him based on your years of experience and wisdom? Well, two things. First of all, if you're going to take drugs, drink beer and um, chase women, don't do, it in, don't do it in that order. <laughs> and secondly, I would have said get a passion earlier. I was passionate about football and I was passionate about having fun, but I think if you can make your passion something that you do it for a living as well. And you've got to, you know, that, that, it took me a long time to become passionate about the work. I, did. I, was always, I was always competent and I always did a really good job, but I never really got passionate about it until quite late in my career. Okay, that's really good advice. I agree. I think finding my obsession with understanding people early has been a major boon for me. And, you know, one of the things that Sandler taught us is that once you understand how to sell, spend all of your time learning about people. And it's a fantastic bit of advice. Learn about microexpressions from Paul Ekman's work. Learn about behavioral economics from the likes of Daniel Kahneman. Learn about persuasion from Cialdini. And really invest in yourself. Put at least one hour a day of study in every single day. While it feels like a bit of a chore, it will pay dividends over the years. I mean, over the last five years, I've listened to or read well over 700 books. And what I noticed from that is the difference in terms of my perception, my understanding, the insight that I have is exponentially greater than it was five years ago. And that's literally an hour a day. 
every day without fail. We never stop learning. Absolutely. One of my favorite proverbs is if you're green, you grow. If you're ripe, you rot. And the problem is that too often people leave school and they become functionally illiterate. They stop reading or all they do is read the sports pages and they don't feed their mind. You've got to feed your mind. Steve, thank you so much. This has been a really interesting and exciting uh, conversation and I look forward to doing it again in the future. How can people get hold of you? LinkedIn. If you search Steve Hall Sydney, that's my hashtag and it's also my um, LinkedIn ID and all my contact details are there. Okay. Thank you again, Steve Hall. I'm my pleasure. Signing off from the Inquisitor podcast. If you'd like to get in touch, please email me at marcus.kauke, that's C-A-U-C-H-I, at sandler.com. You can phone me if you're in the UK on my mobile, 07515 And two requests. If there is someone you would like me to interview for the podcast, then please ping me an email, again, marcus.kauke at sandler.com, and tell me who it is you'd like me to interview and why. And if you'd be a good guest on the podcast, do volunteer. I love talking to interesting and challenging people. And if you've got something to say that's going to be a challenge, that's going to be controversial and uncomfortable for the audience to listen to, even better. That's Marcus Kauke from the Inquisitor Podcast signing off. Happy selling and good luck.